Good morning, and welcome to episode 605 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Howdy. Howdy. How are you? I am okay, thank you. Good. This podcast is the only thing between me and a sled and a hill with snow on it. Where's your hill? Central Park, Pilgrim Hill. It's a sizable hill. You own the sled? I have a couple of those cheapo plastic things. Uh One of them a circle that you have no control over, and one of them that you have slightly more control over. And so when... um... As a uh, as a father, I've I've learned that that you're actually not allowed to hang out at a playground if you don't have kids, which is uh-huh. fine because I have kids. Uh, but um, if you don't have kids, you're definitely not allowed to be there. <laughs> right. The same rule does not apply for sledding. <laughs> I don't think so. I deliberately avoid going during the day, especially during a snow day, because then it's just packed. So if you go after it's dark, there are no kids around, and it's not really an issue. Is it well lit? Yeah, there are some, some lamp posts. Huh, it's just in, just inside the park. Good place right. to go if anyone is in Manhattan. All right, any other banter? Uh, no, I'm deciding whether I want to go forward with more night sledding banter, but I think we can, <laughs> we can just go on. Okay, it's been a slow week for banter material. It's been a slow week for baseball. It has. We all wrote our articles about the commissioner and his comment about shift shifts that he later walked back and that was all any of us has to talk about mm-hmm. all right so fortunately we have emails and we can talk about those uh so i will pick out a couple from the bottom of the mailbag these are back when we talked about minor league salaries both of these questions were prompted by that episode This one is from Sean. He says, let us imagine that an attempt to curtail global warming backfires and results in global cooling that, while short of catastrophic, makes it cost prohibitive for MLB teams to support minor league baseball. But Ben, what do you you think it would be like if it was catastrophic? Like, would there be a train involved, would you think? (laughs) There should be a train involved. People are going to be so happy about a Snowpiercer reference. (laughs) Too expensive to keep the grass green or something. What would MLB be like without the minors? Let us assume that all amateur baseball survived unscathed. How would the play in the field be different from what we are accustomed to if MLB were just like the pro pro football league and that drafted amateurs went straight to the top pro league? Our current low minors provide little insight because they have no veterans and the games they play are not the products parents clubs are selling, as Sam has frequently pointed out. I also wonder how the average MLB career would differ in longevity and productivity. And Mike D. in St. Louis, our pal Mike D., asked a similar question. Could a team compete if they got rid of their minor league system? Could one team supplement their injuries and lack of talent by trading with others or picking up free agents? How many minor league levels would be a minimum to compete? Um, Do you think that the premise requires us to assume that if it's cost prohibitive for MLB teams to support minor league baseball that independent baseball wouldn't exist? Probably. Amateur baseball exists, he says. So I don't know how much difference does it. I guess it makes some difference. I think that you would have. So let's say, um, well, all right. So Mike Trout would have gone to college. And so he, uh, that would be the solution to Mike Trout, right? Mike Mm -hmm. Trout wasn't ready to play in the majors when he was drafted, but he just wouldn't have been drafted until after college. But still, you have the average 
college player is not obviously ready to go to the majors. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, if you're a team that wants to have, um, who's a good call, Justin Verlander or someone, he was very close to major league ready. I'm trying to think of somebody who, just anybody, there are a thousand people, why can't I think of a name? Somebody who went to college and then went to the minors and now is really good at baseball. <laughs> it's, it's pretty <laughs> rare. I think of one. <laughs> just off the top of your head, that's a tough one. Player who went to college. Justin Pedroia. <laughs> All right. Okay. So Justin Pedroia went to college. Um, and when he got out of college, he wasn't ready for the majors. And um, yet, if you're the Red Sox, uh, you, you, there is an, there's enough incentive for you to keep Dustin Pedroia around probably and reap the you know, huge MVP-like rewards mm-hmm. of his um, maturation. Mm-hmm. Uh, some years down the line, it, it would be tricky because you would there'd be a lot of guys who didn't turn into Dustin Pedroia, and so m- probably everybody who's you know drafted in the third or fourth round or lower maybe wouldn't really justify an immediate assignment to the majors. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of guys would, um, you know, certainly like Barry Bonds would have, and so you'd have a whole bunch of these guys who wouldn't be good enough to play in the majors and yet would still justify a roster spot. Mm-hmm. And so you would think that the quality of play would go way down, yeah, to, to some degree, because um, uh, you'd have you'd sort of you'd have to carry some of those guys, and you'd also have, in a way, much shallower rosters, because you wouldn't really be able to get much use out of your Pedroyas and your Bonzes, and therefore your twenty-five man roster might be you know effectively something like nineteen to twenty-two usable men, and um, so. Probably the game itself would change quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't be able to burn through relievers as much. And so, yeah. in a way, the quality of play would come down for that reason, too, and bring it a little bit closer to where the college draftees are. Hard to imagine that some sort of minor league substitute wouldn't spring up. Like, I mean, we're, the condition is that there's no minor leagues, but we're not. You would think that if teams did this, the problem is you'd want to play those guys. You wouldn't just want them to sit on the bench like bonus babies or something. You'd want to play them so they could get better. Mm-hmm. And yet, I mean, this would, it would kind of, you'd always have to be balancing things because teams that just went all veteran would be really good, probably just in the short term, but they'd yeah. be killing themselves long term. Right. They would be like the battered bastards of baseball, playing uh-huh. guys who uh, maybe have less future promise and therefore don't justify a spot on some team's short season minor league affiliate but are 25 and like clearly way better than their competition so you'd have uh, yeah you'd certainly you would have teams that would probably go heavy you might have a lot less parity you might have 20 win teams mm-hmm. uh, like to, if you were really tanking in this regard you could imagine a 15 or 20 win team mm-hmm. because um uh, you could load up on those guys. And I mean, like, so like a guy like Albert Pujols, well, I guess Pujols emerged early enough that he could have, he probably would have emerged by the fourth year of college. Um, but, you know, your typical guy who graduates uh, goes a level at a time and then, um, you know, at 25 or something breaks out, let's say like Corey Kluber or something like that, would they just never be discovered? Is it conceivable that they just wouldn't exist? Their career would never happen? They would quit probably, pitching, yeah. Quit pitching right. at twenty-two, they wouldn't even know that they were ever going to get good. Maybe so. It, I don't know. I mean, it's the. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. Why don't they play in domes? 
<laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. They would. I guess they'd all go to Japan and play in domes. Mm-hmm. Not enough resources to build domes in yeah, the U.S. Or power the uh, the domes, power the air conditioning and the mm-hmm. light. So yeah, if you weren't good enough, if you weren't some minimum level of present ability where a team could carry you on the roster, you would just fade into obscurity, I guess. Unless, I mean, it, right? If there's no if there's no independent leagues, there's no like holding pen where you could go to, which is effectively what the minor leagues are, then yeah, you'd have to go support your family in the post-global cooling environment. So I, I'm going to try to say this, and we might edit it out because I might not be able to <laughs> say it correctly. But so in football, uh, when you get drafted, yeah, you're more let's or less... Let's edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep coming. You're more or less expected to contribute um, you know, fairly quickly, almost immediately. All right. So football is the example of this, or maybe basketball is the example of this. Mm-hmm. So football and basketball have different aging curves than baseball. But still, there is an aging curve. Players, I assume, get better as they get older. And you can probably chart that curve as you know, a multiplying effect or something like that. And so um, you could extrapolate from that and assume that if, if all players at age 21 are you know, X percent better by age 27, then you could sort of extrapolate how many players aren't worth drafting at 21 in those sports and yet should be good enough to play in, in the professional leagues, the top leagues, mm-hmm. by 27, assuming they follow the same aging curve. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if in those sports, those undrafted players are underrepresented compared to uh, the same group of uh, kind of not ready for the majors 21-year-olds in baseball. Does that mm. make sense? Do yeah. 21-year-olds in baseball matriculate at a much, much higher rate than 21-year-olds in the NBA and NFL who aren't ready to contribute? Mm. Yeah, it's, that's a keeper. I'm keeping that in the podcast. All right. <laughs> All right. And Mike D's tangentially related question. So the minor leagues do not disappear, but one team loses its minor league system or just we start taking away minor league levels from that franchise. How many how many minor league levels do you think you could take away and still have a team have a reasonable chance of competing? So this team is this team is going back to pre-Branch Ricky, pre-Cardinals, pre-farm system while so everyone else gets to keep theirs. I think you could I think you could probably get rid of two levels without it being uh, uh, apparent to the naked eye. Yeah. That the that the big league club was any different over the course of twenty years. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think if you cut a ball, so you just skipped from low A to to high A, and from high and then maybe cut uh, high A to to triple A. Uh huh. That would probably work. Maybe you cut triple A and keep double A or something like that. But you're you kind of have you need you need the depth. That's one issue, and you need the place to store all of your penny stocks uh, in the hope that one of them will turn into a, a very valuable stock, mm-hmm. and so the the idea of taking all of them away would I I you know I just wrote about the the value of the best farm system in baseball as you mm-hmm. know, um, and so I found that over if you have the best farm system in baseball I've done this three years in a row I've taken the best farm system in baseball and looked at what they what the what the franchise turned that into over the next uh, nine years plus you're so, really stuck in a rut. Huh. <laughs> I like those articles. 
so uh, so how many wins above replacement you get from those guys, as well as from guys that you trade those guys for, you know, if you treat them as assets, how many wins above replacement do you get from? And so of the top 30 prospects for each of those three teams, the three organizations I've looked at, the top 30 prospects have produced, you know, roughly 100 wins above replacement mm-hmm. uh, at below market rates over the next nine years. And all three of them are still getting some value out of them, even 10, 11, 12 years later. The Brewers, it's hard to assign but at this point because how much of Carlos Gomez do you give credit to J.J. Hardy because they extended Carlos Gomez. But still, uh, their Brewers still have Carlos Gomez as a result of that class. The Angels have now Andrew Heaney and Tyler Skaggs and... Uh, 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 Santiago as a result, result of that class. Um, and the Diamondbacks have like 16 guys as a result of that class. So, so let's say let's say it's somewhere between 100 and 120 wins. So that's just from your top 30. You also end up getting surprised by one or two guys outside the top 30 who produce. So maybe you know, you're know you gaining um, from a very good farm system, maybe call it um, 10 to 15 wins a year. And mm-hmm. That doesn't even include the depth issue of having a sixth, seventh, and eighth starter down there, and uh, you know half your bullpen probably starts the season in the minors. Um, so even excluding that, you're probably docking teams twelve wins or so a year. Mm-hmm. So if there was no farm system, and that's a very good farm system, but if there was no farm system, it would be hard to obviously compete. I mean, we knew that. Everybody knew that was going to be the answer, but I just gave you some numbers. <laughs> yeah. That makes it sound much more authoritative. Yeah, so I don't know. You start stripping away minor league levels. It's like it's like downgrading to a smaller market or something. Maybe if you take away a couple of minor league levels, you're the Brewers or something mm-hmm. in terms of long term expectations. If you have no minor league system, if you are stuck in the Snowpiercer world, while everyone else gets to have a minor league system then you are in big trouble. (laughs) Then you will never win, probably. Mm -hmm. Okay, question from Michael. I read the following story in Ben Bradley's recent biography of Ted Williams. Late in his career, Williams, who had always struggled against the shift or at least lost some hits pulling the ball into the shift, switched to a heavier bat at the beginning of one season. Suddenly, he started hitting the ball to the opposite field, something he had rarely done before despite the shift. This was accompanied by talk that Williams was getting older and could no longer get around on the ball. At some point, defense stopped shifting, and Williams switched back to his regular bat and went back to pulling the ball, going on to hit 388 for the season. So is this a way for hitters to try to beat the shift, or would it mess up hitters' swing mechanics to the point where it would be counterproductive? Just because the greatest hitter ever could do it doesn't mean any hitter could, or is this whole story overstated or apocryphal? You don't hear that much about I, uh, you don't hear that much about baseball players' bats changing sizes. Every once in a while, you'll hear that somebody went to a heavier bat or has a heavy bat or whatever. But I don't really know whether they're tinkerers with that or not, and I don't really know how much an ounce matters to them. Uh, if they picked up a bat that was off by an ounce, I wonder if you'd see it in their numbers at all, mm-hmm. uh, or if you would like if your body just would intuit it and it would you would immediately adjust slightly. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're a kid. You have you might change bats three times a game and have different sizes three times a game, um, and because you're just superstitious or 
tinkering uh, or whatever, you know, some dumb scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I'm told that Major League Baseball is different than that, but I never noticed uh, particularly a huge difference in what you had to do mm-hmm. to, when you were up there. Like when you go up there as a kid and you've switched from the 25 to the 27 or whatever, you're not thinking start earlier. You're just swinging the bat. Swinging it. It's like when you're, you know, if you're hammering a nail and you get a bigger hammer, it's not very cognitively challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't know. I guess it, it sort of sounds persuasive. I mean, if you if you have a heavier bat, then you swing a little more slowly and yet there's more momentum. So there's more force applied. So you still hit the ball harder, but maybe you're slower to the ball. So I don't know whether it whether it cancels out, whether you would just hit the balls, the same the same balls that you would hit otherwise, you would still hit, but the trajectory would be changed a little bit, or whether you would just miss some balls that you otherwise would have hit. I don't know. We should have Alan Nathan on to answer this question, but Yeah, it's... or a hitter. Because I, I feel <laughs> or like a hitter. No, I mean, yeah. I'm, that, that wasn't that wasn't trying mm-hmm. to be glib. I would actually be very interested in finding out from a hitter mm-hmm. what it's like. Yeah, I don't know. It's it it reminds me of my failed Gary Sheffield theory that I used to have or that I don't remember whether I had it or just everyone had it and I liked it at the time, but that Sheffield hit just so many he was so quick and he pulled so many balls foul, so many line drives foul that it just seemed like if he lost a little bat speed at some point, he would suddenly start hitting more balls fair really hard. And I don't think that really happened. Um Although maybe I should check, but I don't know. Ted Williams, uh, the the season that Michael is referencing is 1957 when he was 38, and that was maybe his best offensive season rate rate stat wise, or second best perhaps. But uh, Williams, I mean Williams struggling was amazing. <laughs> like the you know a couple of years before that he had. Had a 200, 209 OPS plus, and the year before that, 201. So he was, if he was really getting hurt by the shift so much, he was still the best hitter in baseball despite it. So I don't know. It's an interesting question. Maybe we can email someone and get a more informed answer at some point. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take Francis in the Bronx. The Bronx. In the podcast with Dirk Hayhurst, he mentioned the concept of momentum in the pitcher-batter struggle. Ben's Grantland colleague, Bill Barnwell, has dismissed what he calls momentum or no-mentum in the NFL. Meanwhile, Russell Carlton and others have said similar things about momentum among baseball teams. Do you think that meaningful momentum exists in any aspect of the game? Does the ball really look like a balloon to hitters who found a groove? Is success up and down the lineup really contagious? To what extent does momentum matter? When have we seen it recently? So I don't have it. Before we answer this, it's, you just inhaled, which implies that you have an answer, which I'm glad about. Maybe. I, but um, I, I want to real quickly tie this to the previous question, because the question of does the ball look like a balloon mm-hmm. uh, is kind of like does the bat feel lighter after you've had a hitting donut on it? Mm-hmm. It does feel lighter. It's not lighter. Mm-hmm. You're not stronger. So far as I can tell, it's just an illusion, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, scientifically it shouldn't work, right? I think I've read well, that, that. logically it shouldn't work. How would it work? <laughs> well, if, I mean, 
Right, but the that you by swinging a heavier bat, you actually tire yourself out and make yourself less able to swing quickly or whatever. Yeah, so um, so it is very. I I believe that the ball looks like a like a balloon when you're mm-hmm. when you're up there. It is unfortunately not a balloon. It's a baseball <laughs> traveling very fast with much resistance, mm-hmm. and you're going to have a hard time hitting it. Hmm. Well, I which is not an answer to this question. It's yeah. an answer to the balloon question. Yeah, I I don't know. Most of the cases where people mention momentum, I don't really differ from people who have looked at it and not found anything. The the ball looks like a balloon is, I don't know, I wouldn't call that momentum. I guess you, you could call it momentum. I would just call it, I don't know, a hot streak or being locked in or whatever. And I do believe in that to some extent. I don't know. When we, when we talked about things that we believe about baseball without evidence, sometime recently talking about that Ken Arneson essay where he listed things he believed in without evidence and I couldn't really come up with anything at the time. I guess this is one where I believe it. The evidence is that every hitter will tell you it's true, but it's hard to find statistical evidence, at least that definitively proves it. But I I do believe that that some hot streaks are at least partly the result of a hitter having a true talent level during that streak that is higher than his normal true talent level for whatever reason. Well, maybe his mechanics are yeah. practiced at that moment and nothing is amiss and maybe he's healthy at that moment and he's not bothered by any nagging injuries. And it's not as if like guys suddenly become 450 true talent hitters over the course of a hot streak where they hit 450. But I do believe that even if it's not predictive, even if we can't look at how a guy has been hitting lately as a guide to how he will hit even the next day, I do believe that there are times when hitters are better prepared to to like maximize their abilities than, than other times. I just don't know if we can ever really tell from looking at numbers. Yeah. I think that there's kind of two different ways that people phrase this question. One is, does the hotness feed itself? And that is not what you, uh, which is one way of phrasing it. There's another legitimate way of phrasing it, which you answered, which is, does performance cluster for Mm -hmm. various reasons? And I would believe that performance clusters for various reasons, some of which are identifiable, some of which aren't, and many of which uh, are prone to false positives. And I uh, am inclined to believe that there is a small uh, and perhaps not useful but nonetheless uh, real effect of the hotness feeding itself in Mm -hmm. some way for some skills to some players Mm -hmm. Um, because again not a major leaguer uh, never was um, (laughs) and my level of performance uh, is not well I any mental deficiencies that I have would probably be weeded out uh, by the weeding process, but I used to shoot a hundred free throws every day, and uh, you know you'd hit nine in a row, and then there would just be this trigger in your brain that said, "Not this one. You're not hitting this one," <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you, and you'd shank it, uh-huh. and it was undeniable, and it was never false. And I'm much more weak-willed than the average elite athlete, uh, but elite athletes, um, there's got to be a weak will or so in there. Yeah, I would I would believe that, but I would also believe that just about any time 
anyone ever makes an argument based on that or cites it as as a reason for someone's performance that it's probably overblown that it's just one of those things that might exist on a very small level or maybe a larger level for the very rare athlete but on the whole if you're if you're praising a guy for having that quality you are probably overpraising that particular quality mm-hmm. all right play index Sure. So I uh, I had the uh, I got to have dinner with Doug Thorburn yesterday, and while Doug and I were having dinner, the conversation of uh, best pitcher ever came up. Mm. Uh, do you by chance have a a pick? Who is your best pitcher ever? Uh, Pedro for peak, and Maddox or Clemens. Oh my gosh, you're the worst at this game. <laughs> ben, there's only six people that one could pick. You've named three of them. <laughs> we know who the six are. <laughs> You're, the point is to make a decision. Pick one. Is it peak or is it career? And if it's career, which one is it? Okay. Maddox. All right. So I say Pedro because um, I'm a peak guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Doug says Randy peak Johnson. Is, yeah, Johnson. Peak is great, but for pitchers particularly? Oh, it's I, not. If your peak is three years, I don't go peak. But yeah. if your peak is... A decade, then I go peak. It's just so impressive when a pitcher lasts, <laughs> no matter how he pitched, how while he's lasting. So yeah. if you can combine elite and lasting, that's just amazing. I agree. And I also, I mean, you might get me. Most days I say Pedro. Some days I say Clemens for, for the longevity mm-hmm. reasons. But there's like six guys you could say. It's the ones we've named plus... Um, uh, maybe Seaver and maybe Lefty Grove and maybe Walter Johnson. And that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I said Pedro, he said Randy Johnson. And that got me thinking about something. And what it got me thinking about was our Corey Kluber discussion. Corey Kluber's not going to turn into Randy Johnson, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. But when I was naming all the guys who had uh, unexpected breakouts and then uh, did not keep it up, um, I could have also given the counterexample of Randy Johnson, who like Corey Kluber, was not very good through age 26, had uh, his first kind of breakout uh, or had a a semi-breakout at 27 uh, and then was um, uh, very good at 28, I think, or maybe 29, something like that. Around that time, the same time as Kluber, he was sort of putting things together. And so let's say 29, when he was 29, he basically had his first year with under 100 walks. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had 99, but he struck out 308. His ERA was uh, well above average for the first time. He finished second in Cy Young voting. Before that, he'd been pretty bad. And, um, of course, Randy Johnson is the same guy who Doug Thorburn thinks is the greatest pitcher of all time. So something obviously uh, changed, and if you had taken the under on his projections going forward, you would have been wrong for a very, very long time. Um, And so I wanted to see just how extreme Randy Johnson's career was to get him from there to uh, where he ended up so Mm -hmm. i looked at where he ranked in career war uh at each age from 27 to 45 Uh and uh so i have those here it goes so it's pretty much just pretty awesome curve uh so age 27 he was the 813th greatest pitcher of all time uh, (laughs) which Actually sounds way better than it is because he had, I think, five war, by the <laughs> reference. 
And so if you think about guys with five war, like, I don't know, that's probably somewhere like uh, maybe maybe Charlie Morton. I'm not sure. But that's <laughs> the kind of name that you find at 5.3 war through age 27. So at, through 27, this is not through 23, through 27, <laughs> which is the same age that Kluber was uh, in 2013. Charlie Morton, no. no <laughs> I was going to look also. Uh, all right, so 813. Uh, this is, by the way, since 1920, because before that, everybody threw 65 starts and 550 innings a year. Um, all right, age 28, he goes from 813 up to 670. Mm-hmm. Still very poor. Age 29, his biggest jump, he goes from 670 to 334. Basically cuts in half wow. the number of pitchers in history who were better than him. How valuable a season was that? Uh, age 29, that was the one I said where he was second in Cy Young voting. Um, although, uh, probably didn't deserve to be, um, he, uh, still walked a ton of guys, but no, yeah, he deserved to be 6.8 war. Mm -hmm. Um, and then age 30, uh, which is when he uh, finished third in Cy Young voting, uh, he, and, but had a better year. He went from 334 to 213 and then age 31 was his first Cy Young. And this is by far his best year up to that point. Maybe, arguably, the best year he ever had. Maybe not. It was the year he went eighteen and two. It's the strike semi-shortened season. It was the year he pitched in relief in that game and everything. Okay, so from there he went from two thirteen to one eighteen, and so now he is in the conversation. By the way, two thirteen mm-hmm. uh, through age thirty. Uh, just to put that in perspective, Ubaldo Jimenez is thirty <laughs> right now, and they were tied. <laughs> okay. So through age 30, he was Ubaldo Jimenez, and Ubaldo Jimenez was Randy Johnson, which kind of makes you think. It does. All right. Age 31, uh, 118. That's the same as uh, John Lackey was through that age, to put that in perspective. Lackey, a very good pitcher. One of the best number twos, I would say, in the game through that age. Uh, and that's what Randy Johnson was. Age 32, uh, he actually backslid slightly because he got injured. He was very good, but injured. Uh, he only started eight games. So he falls back to 128, and now he's basically Dan Heron's career, which is mm-hmm. also very good. Not a Hall of Famer, but very good. Age 33, he's 85th. And you know how I said 813 at the beginning is actually worse than it sounds? Mm-hmm. 85th is better. 85th is actually a lot better than it sounds. So he mm-hmm. was 33 and 85th. Zach Granke basically tied with him right now. Granke's only 30, so three years ahead of Randy Johnson's pace. Kershaw is ahead of him considerably at 26. So Kershaw is well over seven years ahead of Randy Johnson's pace. Um, So it sounds good, but it's still below Hall of Fame for sure. Age 34, he goes up to number 63 all-time, which matches Javier Vazquez. Age 35, he's up to 37th all-time through that age, which is about where Tim Hudson was. Age 36, he finally catches up to Kurt Schilling, which is interesting because Schilling also kind of a late bloomer. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of years of wandering. But by 36, he's the 22nd best pitcher of all time uh, through that age. He ties Schilling. He was just behind. He ties Schilling at 37. It's 15th. 38th. Moves into the top 10. 39. 7th. Just a tiny bit behind Pedro Martinez. Age 40, he passes Steve Carlton. He's now 6th. Age 41, he's now 5th. And then he, uh, the fit, once you're 5th, it's very hard to keep moving up. It's Grove, Clemens, Seaver, and Maddox ahead of him. And so he's trying to close the gap, and he just 
can't quite do it. He manages to get to within 0.3 war of Greg Maddox uh, mm-hmm. in his career. So he ended up fifth all-time, 0.3 wins behind Greg Maddox, starting at age 27 at 813, which is an amazing, amazing, amazing career. And he is the best pitcher in history uh, from age 30 on, from age 31 on, from any of those sort of dates that or ages you want to check. Incidentally, from age 31 on, the 17th best pitcher of all time is Jamie Moyer, and the 16th best of all time is David Wells. So they're kind of like the um, Raul Ibanez's of pitchers, where they're not yeah. Hall of Famers, but they <laughs> mm-hmm. had Hall of Fame 30s. Mm-hmm. They had Hall of Fame-level decades. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to make a Raul Ibanez comp at the beginning of this play index segment. I'm glad I refrained. That's mm-hmm. a good one. Good Thanks. play index. All right, so use the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Okay, uh, Ernie Banks. We got an Ernie Banks question. I was wondering if you guys think Ernie Banks was the greatest player in the modern era to never play a postseason game. If not, who? That question is from Neil. And it's really a three-man race, I would say. Baseball Reference helpfully has a list on its homepage right now of players with the most games played with no postseason appearance. Ernie Banks is at the top of that list, 25, 28 games, 19 seasons. So when you have a Hall of Famer at the top of the list who also played the most games, it's pretty hard to beat that. The only guys who really, I think, have a case are his longtime teammate, Ron Santo, and Luke Appling, who is second in games played without making a postseason appearance. And I think Banks takes it. Appling actually has a higher career war, but Banks's peak was just ridiculous. It blows away Appling's peak. Blows away lots of players' peaks. I guess he's he is the anti Raul Abanias, or really he's the anti Randy Johnson because his twenties were amazing. And but Santo, though, what I mean, Santo's peak was pretty amazing too. I mean, Santo only played like fourteen years, didn't he? Yeah, that's true. Uh, let's see, Santo. I will see what his peak WAR score in Jaws is. He played fifteen years, twenty-two, forty-three games, and yeah, he he ended up with actually a higher WAR, very slightly higher WAR than Banks. His peak was fifty-three point eight. War in his seven-year peak, and Banks had 51.9 seven-year peak. So, yeah, I guess Santo has uh, just about as strong a case, unless you want to give Banks extra credit for just playing longer without somehow running into a postseason appearance. But best player, it is it's pretty close. So Adam Dunn made the playoffs uh, technically. Yeah, he's actually on this is he, list. Is that? I yeah, I, I know. I don't know if we would count him or not. Does it? Do you have to appear in it? I don't know. It's a good I question. Says, but anyway, yeah. uh, let's uh, move beyond that. So, um, so Dunn was like a seventeen WAR career. Um, what do you think going forward? Assuming that the playoffs will never be scaled back, uh, they will be as is or expand. Uh, what do you th- and player movement presumably isn't in danger of being scaled back anytime soon. So, uh, 
so it's hard to imagine, you know, there's not going to be a Santo or a Banks who spends an entire career with one team and that one team manages to never make playoffs. Very unlikely. So mm-hmm. going forward from now until the end of our lifetimes, what do you think will be uh, the highest war that anybody ever produces without a playoff appearance hmm. in their career? It seems like it would be tough to get beyond about 10 seasons at this point. I'm looking at the the list of active guys other than Vernon Wells, who is technically still active. Alex Rios is the next highest guy at 11 years and obviously hasn't played most of his career in the, the 10 playoff team era. So it would be tough to get beyond that, probably. So, I mean... If we're talking about 10 years-ish, then and and the better the player is, probably the less likely he is to be on this list. So I don't for, know. For two reasons. For, like, his teams will presumably be a little better because he's good, and also he probably won't stop playing after 10 years. Right, yeah. He's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, hmm, I don't know, I'll say 50? Oh, wow, that's way higher than I would have said. Like I would have, I I might bet that there is never another player who produces thirty five, maybe even thirty. Huh. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, Banks. If you haven't looked at Ernie Banks, his his Baseball Reference page in the last few days, which I'm sure many of you have, his peak, his twenties were really amazing. He hurt his knee and moved to first base just like starting with his age 31 season. And after that, he was just kind of an average-ish player sometimes. But before that, he was amazing. Like the there was just no one doing what he was doing. At the time he moved off of shortstop, I think he had 277 home runs, something like that, as a shortstop, which was the most anyone had ever had. And over that span, like 53 to 61, when he was playing shortstop regularly, he like tripled the next closest shortstop in terms of home runs. He was just kind of one of a kind and a good defender too, according to the stats that we have. And also just an amazing hitter. I wonder why he moved to first so early and cause Injury. that's the thing that, Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. He had a, a knee thing. Uh, so he couldn't even play second or third. Yeah, that's an unusual transition, probably, yeah. especially at that age. Yeah. All right. Unlike Appling, who who played shortstop forever. He actually right. moved. He first moved to left field. Did you know that? Banks. Oh, yeah. yeah I read that briefly. Right. Briefly. Very yeah. briefly. Mm-hmm. And uh, Willie Mays occasionally played second base. Did you know that? Uh, yeah, I tweeted it that not that long ago. It's uh, every. Every wait, uh, maybe I had that wrong. Maybe it was Hank Aaron. Hmm. Hang on, Willie Mays did not ever play second base. It was Don Mattingly. <laughs> uh, um, Don Mattingly played one out at second base. Hank Aaron played five, uh, appeared at second base in five different seasons. Hmm. Just would just show up at second base for a game <laughs> or two. Okay. Have we fulfilled our obligation, as Carson Sistoli says? I have fulfilled mine, and you have fulfilled yours, and we have both fulfilled Carson's. Great. 
All right, so that is it for today. Please join our Facebook group. It's ever swelling ranks at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Send us some emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. I read the reviews. The good ones make me happy. And we will be back later this week.